Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review, the show about the musicians we're obsessed with and the albums you need to know right now. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief of Pitchfork, and in each episode I'll be joined by some of my favorite critics and editors to dig into new releases, legendary artists, and even some that you probably haven't heard of yet. We'll share the thinking and the analysis behind what we do because, trust me, there is a lot that goes into each and every review. And on that note, one person that you'll be hearing a lot from is Pitchfork's reviews editor and my co-host, Jeremy Larson. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Pooja. Talking about music. I love it. So I thought we'd kick off this new season with our favorite polarizing pop band, The 1975, and their new album, Being Funny in a Foreign Language. We featured them on a recent cover story and gave the release an 8.0. Whether or not you're a fan of The 1975, here's the deal. The band is made up of four guys from Manchester, England, and fronted by the moody and charming and sometimes controversial singer Maddie Healy. They first got together in 2002 when they were in high school, playing punk covers under a bunch of different names. And then in 2013, they officially began calling themselves the 1975, started writing their own emo-influenced music, and released their self-titled debut. By their second album in 2016, the band had refined their sound and sharpened their wit to become a legitimate pop outfit. The title of that album, and bear with me here, is I Like It When You Sleep For You Are So Beautiful Yet So Unaware Of It. This is when Maddie started stepping into his indie, cool kid, heartthrob era with songs like Somebody Else and Love Me. And love me. If this what you wanna do, oh. Over the next few years, the band's music captured a generation in existential crisis. Their 2018 album, A Brief Inquiry into Online Relationships, became the voice of millennial angst with songs like Love It If We Made It. And then, at the start of the pandemic, they released Notes on a Conditional Form. It was a sprawling, indulgent, and very, very, very long album that saw Maddie at his most personal, including on the song Guys. It 
So I'd mentioned that we had recently talked to Maddie Healy for a cover story. And in just a minute, our Futures editor, Ryan Domble, who hung out with Maddie in London, will join us to tell us all about it. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. I'm Pooja Patel, Pitchfork's editor-in-chief, here with Reviews editor Jeremy Larson and Features editor Ryan Domble. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello again. All right. So let's jump into this. I feel like every 1975 album is self-serious in some kind of way, but this one feels like the 1975 is trying to be taken seriously. Ryan, what was your first take upon listening to the album? My first take was that this album is extremely short. Um, 1975 are known for doing everything to the nth degree, and that includes the amount of songs on their albums. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this one is 11 songs, and it's about, uh, you know, 45 minutes, like a normal length for an album. I mean, it's half the length of Notes on a Conditional Form. So yeah, they made half of an album uh, compared to their last one. And I do think that part of that is, you know, they're getting older. They're in their 30s now. There's something self-consciously classic about this album. A lot of the photography is black and white. Mm -hmm. This is kind of their attempt to do something timeless, perhaps. Whereas a lot of their previous music was very of the moment. That song, Love It If We Made It, is kind of famously replicating the effect of a endless scroll of social media. This album to me is maybe less endless scroll, more (laughs) very old book (laughs) or something that the pages are yellowing. Jeremy, what about you? So when I first hit play and I heard the first track, the 1975, and I heard that little piano line, I was thrilled because here is this band who is known for sounding like so many other bands like In Excess and Fine Young Cannibals and Duran Duran and all of that. And here they are like taking a page right out of LCD Sound Systems book, a band who are also known for sounding like a bunch of other bands like (laughs) New Order and yada, yada, yada. And so I was like, oh my God, we are in the most self-reflexive, heady, amazing space. Like, I am so glad to be back with my like neurotic man, Maddie. (laughs) And then it opens with a boner joke. And I'm like, yes, let's go. I'm so excited. This will get bigger if you know what I mean. I'm sorry if you live in 17. I heard it's unvoted to be super thin, but 
friends aren't fixed, they can't come in. I think he deserves a little bit of credit based on, you know, what he's done before. But like, it'll get bigger, if you know what I mean, is also, you know, the song deals with like, the the decline of democracy. Mm -hmm. And like, there's notes of climate collapse. And to me, like that line doubles as all the terrible shit that's happening now will get bigger. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? As well. So it's like, it is a boner joke. It is also like a condemnation of humanity. And what better kind of boner joke is <laughs> <Great>. that? <laughs> uh, I loved that first track. And then we sort of dip into some of the other more romantic, sincere songs. And I started to feel the album sort of shrink musically. And uh, that's when sort of all of the excitement sort of like started to leave me because I think part of what I love about this band is their extra-ness and uh -huh. how little basically fucks they have to give. Uh, right. When Maddie is writing lyrics, when they are doing these very indulgent interludes and like I couldn't tell you what song 19 on notes on a conditional form sounds like <laughs> but I sort of like love the effort that they're putting in there whether it works whether it hits as hard as their earlier stuff like I feel like that is something we can maybe talk about both of you kind of already reference the nostalgia and the 1975 love nostalgia it's part of their whole thing this is kind of dripping with 80s vibes I feel like when we collectively first listened to it together, Jeremy, you were making a recommended if you like playlist in real time into the chat. Yeah. Just kind of like, instead of this, listen to this. So what were you both hearing? I'd like to revise that now that I've spent a lot more time <laughs> with the album, because I think initially I was hearing some, you know, some Paul Simon or some Peter Gabriel. I think what I'm hearing now is more like Lionel Richie. Or Backstreet Boys. Like, there's something... Can you explain that? I think there's something a little less textured about this album. And I think there's something a little neutered about the sound on this album. <laughs> and again, I don't want to sit here and bring out Jack Antonoff as the whipping boy, as someone who drags artists into the mushy middle. But I kind of feel like that's exactly what happened with this album, at least to me. I kind of find that there are <laughs> these these songs just kind of don't have the extremes of previous 1975 songs. And I'm literally talking about instruments or textures like digital textures or electronic little filigrees that draw me in. It is a very conservative sounding record. And I think he's mentioned this a little bit in the piece that Dombo wrote. It's that like sometimes he wanted to just write an old standard, like something that Adele could sing. I just think it maybe is like a little too small to be a stand in for some of those old standards. Right. And to quickly explain the Jack Antonoff of it all, yeah. it is that Jack Antonoff was brought in to produce this album. Jack Antonoff, who is kind of the pop world's go to indie pop world's go to producer of the moment. And and big pop also, I'd say. Yeah. But Domble, I feel like you had a really interesting conversation about that in particular. Yeah. So after they made their last album, it seemed, and you know, the pandemic happened, 
it seemed like they were a little bit lost, like a lot of folks were. And they initially went into the studio with this other producer, BJ Burton, and he's famous for making albums with Boney Vare and Lowe that are relatively weird sounding albums. He's one of the f- more radical forces in the Boney Vare camp with albums like 22 a million as far as like the weirder parts of that album I think are understood that he had a pretty big part to play. So yeah, Maddie Healy and BJ Burton and and also George Daniel who's the 1975's drummer and producer and they went in the studio and fooled around and for months apparently and came away with not a lot to show for it mm-hmm. by all accounts and BJ Burton told me that he seemed pretty frustrated with the experience and that he wanted to try to do something a little bit more original as opposed to the endlessly referential strategy Mm -hmm. that they usually do. And there was just seemingly some conflict, not hard to say if it was like drag out fights. Like that's not the impression I got is more of, it was just kind of not a connection in the studio when they were writing. So yeah, Maddie turned to Jack Antonoff and with this concept of more of a live album, not electronic, you know, nothing in the computer, just kind of playing these songs out. And that's what they did. I think they recorded it pretty quickly. And it does sound like a band in a recording studio, generally. (laughs) And I think that's what they're going for. The the faintest of praise. (laughs) (laughs) But after, you know, they, they have done this sprawl where each song is a different genre and like there's different elements there's you know there's electronic elements there's regular quote-unquote band rock quote-unquote rock elements just going into the rock live rock thing i could see how that could be disappointing to some there's definitely less variation on this record This to me sounds firmly like the 1975, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was that was also the kind of the concept. They were saying that a lot of the reason why they had done so many different genres in the past is that they were kind of insecure. Mm-hmm. You say, I, I can't do a hard rock song. Well, I'm going to mm-hmm. do a hard rock song, like, about people wanting to fuck Barack Obama. Like, you know, it's like... <laughs> like they did that. And, you know, you can't say we can do like a UK garage song. Like, let's do that. So I think with this one, they were just like, hey, we're kind of known for a sound. Mm-hmm. Most of their biggest hits do have this big 80s type of sound. And let's just lean into that for this record. Let's just be the 1975 instead of trying to be every single band on Earth. Well, another person featured on this album is Michelle Zahner also known as Japanese Breakfast, also known as New York Times number one bestselling author of Crying in H Mart. And so I feel like the 1975 is a little more thoughtful than the average like pop act. Is that fair to say? This album opens with a boner joke. So I don't know <laughs> if you can call it thoughtful, but I do what, think- People aren't allowed to sing about boners? <laughs> no, well- Maddie certainly loves to. I think it's this is a record a lot about his dick. Like he said that. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. He did. Am I he wrong? Did. <laughs> um, no, it's true. But I think thoughtful is a good word 
where I find some of like the hooks and choruses of this record to be a little grating and not for me, I think the way he sort of writes into and out of them are really creative and still have that specificity of of time and place and people and feelings. I just think he kind of flops on the, the chorus of these things for me. He told Ryan in that interview that he he's done clever before. He's done irony. And what he really wanted to do with his record is like, what if I were earnest? And I totally sympathize with that idea. But I think he just took earnesty to mean sort of like stark, diaristic feeling as opposed to sort of stringing up an idea in an interesting way. Like on previous records, he would have choruses that were really succinct but interesting like i always want to die sometimes or it's not living if it's not with you and here we just get stuff like i'm in love with you repeated 25 times or (laughs) do you think that i've forgotten about you and i did ask him about that specifically because it does really stand out as just like very simple as a chorus And he said that in the studio, he's kind of, you know, toiling away at that. And then the guitarist in the band, not to put the guitarist in the band under the bus here, but Adam Hahn, who's the guitarist in the group, apparently kind of pressed the button like, you know, into the studio room and was like, just do I'm in love with you. Like, you don't need this other stuff. Like, you don't need to make it ironic or or clever or, you know, funny. Just say it. Like, just say it. And Maddie was like, you know what? You're right. So it's funny, like you're calling that out. And I think it's 100% valid and and it does stand out. And it was an actual conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, like in the studio, Mm -hmm. like they were thinking the same exact thing. And, you know, they decided to go with the simple version. And I don't know, like. Okay, wait, wait, there's a lot to talk about with the lyrics of the 1975. So we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll get into some more of that in a minute. Come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. As we know, Maddie's personality can be like a little difficult, a little polarizing, but it's also kind of the most compelling or one of the most compelling things about the band is that this person is so hard to pin down. And I'm wondering what it was like to spend time with him in person, Dumble, and if it felt like the person that we hear on these songs is the person he is in real life. Yes, (laughs) I would say so. For better and worse, it was really fun to hang out with him for a day. You know, we started the day going to this uh, rare bookshop that he frequents. And 
he was just kind of all over the place, like touching everything, touching some things he wasn't supposed to be touching, some rare books and artifacts, you know, like super old, like Shakespeare folios. And there was this rare John Lennon, like drawings. Um, Being in an interview is a performance in itself. And he's aware of that. And he just kept going, you know, like just walking around London. He just had something to say about everything, just like a running commentary. Having experienced him in real life, do you not feel like this is the line that I've called out to these folks before, the line that's like, I thought we were fighting. You said it was gaslighting. I didn't know it had its own word. I'm better at writing. It's just a way to get you biting. The truth is that our egos are absurd. I thought we were fighting, but it seems I was gaslighting you. I didn't know that it had its own way. Like, is that not earnest, Jeremy? That's very earnest. I love that lyric. I think reading sort of the lyrics on the page, I really get a sense of who he is. And again, I really don't like to just blame Jack Antonoff. (laughs) <laughs> but I do think that, like... Don't lie. We love to blame Jack Antonoff at Pitchfork, I to don't, be honest. I mean, I really... I, I just... It's like when you hear the story of, like, Maddie trying to work with, like, this cool artist, B.J. Burton, who manipulates sound and really pushes bands to reinvent themselves. I think, like, he worked with this band, Low, on their last two albums... And they changed their sound entirely, like, I think because B.J. Burton pushed them to do it. And it created some of my favorite music of the last 10 years, like not to mention 22 A Million, which I think is a hugely influential album on like how sort of modern pop has began to sound. And so when you hear the story of like this artful and creative person coming in, trying to push Maddie to this different direction and him saying, I'm not really sure about that. I'm going to go work with the most popular producer in the world. The Hollywood sort of cinematic narrative of that, it just, it's so hard for me to feel like that was a good decision. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's unfair of me, but it just feels like rejecting like the nerdy kid and going and hanging out at the popular kid's table. Mm -hmm. I am reducing these actual personalities to archetypes and that's not fair, but it's also sometimes how I feel about this record is that it just feels like more of a popular kids record and Maddie turns into like Funko Pop Maddie as opposed to this expressive lightning always going off in his mind person, which you really got to feel from some of his earlier records. And again, like Mm -hmm. I love some of this writing on this record, like the title track. Uh, I love that they always open their record with a song called The 1975. There's this line that's like legitimately funny and good where he's like, QAnon created a legitimate scene, but it was just some bloke in the Philippines. I don't think that's too clever. I don't think that's ironic. I just think that's like a line that is really hard to pull off 
that's topical and funny and like weaving into uh, something about music and alternative music in this song that opens the record. But the, also the hook of that song is, I'm sorry if you're living if you're 17, which is a perfect baity pop hook. It's like oh, the totally. 22, the Taylor Swift 22, right? Like it's yeah. demanding that well. and every 17-year-old <laughs> take that on as their own, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, the sentiment is the exact opposite, though, of, right. of 22. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, it's very sad yeah. as a sentiment, but it is kind of... Yeah, you know, when you put a number in a song, it does give it a certain power. Let me read something to you. I want to get both of your reactions to what I'm going to read to you. Are you ready? Here we go. Am I allowed a choice? No, you just have to just react. Okay. Ready? All right. Here we go. <laughs> okay. Vaccinista, tote bag, chic baristas sitting in East on their communista keisters writing about their ejaculations. <laughs> Pooja, thoughts? I stopped listening after the fourth word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm smiling myself. Uh, it's funny that lyric actually reminded me of the train song, "Drops of Jupiter." Yep. yep. Uh, which I which I I didn't have the courage to tell. To wow, that is throw so out that true. comparison to Maddie, but um, I think it's safe to say it's the most overwritten part <laughs> of the album. Here's where I'm going to like make a case for this album a bit because I do enjoy it and I've listened to it a billion times. Like what I was saying before and what Jeremy, what you're saying about you miss the kind of brain popping part. I think it's true that they have done that many times. And I think if they did it again, to me, it would be exhausting. It would almost be like spending that extra, you know, whatever time like with Maddie, like in his brain with this album, he's trying to get like outside of his brain. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. And I like that pursuit, like a song like. All I need to hear is like this very traditional ballad. It all means nothing, my dear. If I can't be holding you near, tell me to love me. That's all I need to hear. And there's a line like, I don't need the crowds and the cheers. Just tell me you love me. That's all I need to hear. That does seem maybe a little bit trite, or, you know, I've kind of heard something like this before, but I really do feel like that is a constant battle with him. Like, he's Mm -hmm. been famous and, like, been playing a really big crowd since he was about 20. Yeah. And that's a huge part of him. Like, he has a huge ego. Like, you know, he's a rock star. Mm -hmm. There's no debating that. So, like, for him to say, like, I, I don't need the crowds and the cheers... And to mean it or try to mean it is a, a big deal. Like, and it's meaningful. And he did mention that that was one of the songs that he was most proud of on this album, in part because it was least expected or, you know, it's plain. Totally. And I like a lot of the moments that are just, yeah, him trying to be in the moment and not trying to comment on the comment on the director's <laughs> mm-hmm. cut. It's just like, this is the thing instead of like, you know, the Charlie Kaufman version of the thing. This man is heartbroken and he is tired. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you get the option to work with a legendary experimentalist producer um, like BJ and your brain is not capable of handling that because you are living in a fog yeah. where 
you know, you just need something that feels soothing and direct. I think, Dumbledore, the word meaningful is such a appropriate word, both for this album and I think just like Maddie's entire like songwriting creed de corps, like that's what he wants to write. I think he wants to create meaning, whether that's personal or political. Like I think like he really believes in that. And I am doubly blessed to live in this world with Maddie that we can have lines about QAnon mixed with these very raw, stark sentiments about love. Mm-hmm. I love this little piece in the story where he's like, yeah, I've had people call me after albums come out and be like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> you know? Okay, I'll just say one one more thing. Mm-hmm. One more thing. Jeremy, I can count on you to say one more thing every he time. He says, I will say six more things. I have 20 <laughs> more things. We'll go through them real uh-huh, quickly. Number uh-huh, one, uh-huh. when he said that they wanted to just be a band again, right? And it's like, And he's like, George is a great drummer. Like, let's hear him play the drums. Where is he on this album? Like where where is where is George playing the drums on this album? <laughs> you know? Like <laughs> well, I don't know if he means like crazy fills. I no. think he's saying you that know. I want to sound like a band in a studio. Yeah, well, I want them to sound I just they they're so like sexy when they're big, you know? Like I feel like this band can be like this really sort of sexy huge weirdly like erotic band because they <laughs> love to sound well i'm sorry like they sound like in excess they sound like scritty politty which were these like slick sleek black leather great bands and i think like when some of that is taken out and you get this more like pop focused production it relies so much on sentiment and so much on meaning And I think sometimes like they just don't. Here you are asking for earnestness and vulnerability and then being mad when the songs rely on meaning and sentiment. Well, because I think I feel like I feel like somebody else. One of my favorite 1975 songs is sexy because it shows emotional vulnerability. I think it does, too. But also I miss the little trebly guitars and I miss just like the drums coming crashing in and. And I miss like Maddie going a little more wild on the mic. There's something so great about, you know, when he comes in on the top of I love it if we made it when he's like, like, we're fucking in a car. We're just like, let's go. Yeah, I mean, sure. (laughs) There's very little sort of let's go moments on this record. And that's that's all I'm asking for. I kind of agree with parts of that in that some of my favorite songs are the ones where they are band E or obviously band E because, you know, Part of the band, which was the first single, is ironically mm-hmm. not bandy mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at all. She was part of the Air Force, I was part of the band, I always used to burst into my hand. And my, my, my imagination. You know, so it, I agree that doesn't necessarily completely fit with the, the concept of the album, but songs like Looking for Somebody to Love is a great drum part. I love how that sounds and it really just it's just a driving rock song and, and another one is about you toward the end of the album is kind of almost the inverse of that
it's a festival rock ballad, like in mm-hmm. the U2 mold. But it's also very like sounds like a band. Like it just sounds like they could just walk out of the studio and onto the festival stage and, and play that song without any bells and whistles added. Maybe it was a really good concept that they just they maybe should have followed through with slightly more even. Well, before we go, Jeremy, for people who did not like this album, who would rather not with this album, what would you recommend they listen to instead? Check out the four previous 1975 <laughs> albums. You know, yeah, Billy Joel's Turnstiles, that has a lot of the, the, what this <laughs> this is going on with. I cannot believe that you are recommending that someone listen to a Billy Joel album instead of this one. That's what this sounds like to me. Like, it just, all the instrumentation and the mixing just sounds so Billy Joel-y or like Lionel Richie to me. If you don't like this, maybe you'll like Billy Joel. <laughs> Ryan, what would you recommend for people who love this album? <laughs> you know, one thing we were talking about was Huey Lewis's The Power of Love classic. 100%. Uh, another mm-hmm. 80s classic. Another one like Don Henley, Boys of Summer. Mm-hmm. Reminds me a lot of like some of the songs on this album. Bruce Hornsby, The Way It Is. There's definitely a piano on a song called Oh Caroline. That is, seems a very similar tone as that famous Bruce Hornsby piano. Ryan Domble and Jeremy Larson, thank you for hanging out. Thank you. I love it that we made a podcast. Same. (laughs) Anything else that you love, Jeremy, Mm, that you want to share? No, that's it. Okay. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. Thanks to Ryan Domble and Jeremy Larson. You can find them at Ryan Domble and at Jeremy D. Larson on Twitter. You can also check out Ryan's interview with Maddie Healy at pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Grimalia is our music supervisor. I'm the editor of Pitchfork, Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.